Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> it's a joyful day to be in the Lord's presence, be with the Lord's people, sit under the authority of the Lord's word. We are blessed indeed to have the privilege to gather freely and have the word of God open and the spirit working among us. And so we're thankful. I hope to see many of you this afternoon at 2 p.m. We have four people that are getting baptized this afternoon. So come, even if you don't have time to bake a cookie or go to the store, come along. There'll be plenty. You can always bring a blanket and sit on the grass. There'll be lots of room uh, to come and celebrate. We'll be down at the riverside singing a few choruses and hymns and then getting some folks baptized. This week in the state of California, ballots will go out for the election that will come up in November. And we won't have a lot to say about that except for issues that touch on the gospel. Proposition 1 would enshrine in the Constitution of the state of California the absolute right to abortion paid for by taxpayer money all the way up through nine months, and even if the child survives, there'd be no medical care ne required in that situation. We must vote no on Proposition 1. It is a gospel issue we are a pro-life church that is pro-life from the moment of conception to the time of natural death. We must be a prophetic voice against evil. And so as you fill out your ballot and you get to Proposition 1, the, the biblical, the Christian, the righteous response is no. And so let's even pray now that a spirit of righteousness would sweep across our state to defeat such an evil proposition. Father, we turn to you in Jesus' name and we are grieved that we are led by such foolishness that thinks that killing children is somehow an inherent right. And so we pray that you would visit our land in a special way with a conviction of sin, with a recognition of wrong, and with a, a, a desire to uphold human dignity and human life. Father, we confess this morning that each life is a gift from you, and you alone are the Lord, the giver of life. And so, Father, would you raise up people north and south, east and west in this state to say enough, enough of the bloodshed on our watch, and that this evil proposition would be defeated. And we pray that a, a, an awakening and a revival would come that would bring a, a culture of life over a culture of death. So help us, Lord, in these days to pray and to seek your face and to share with our neighbors and with our colleagues and with students and with those that are our neighbors and say, let's stand together and be pro-life all the way around. And so we pray, Father, and ask that this proposition would be defeated in Jesus' name. Amen. One night a house caught on fire. And a little boy in the upstairs room was forced to flee to the roof for safety. And the father stood on the ground below with outstretched arms calling out to his son, Jump! Jump! I will catch you! He knew the boy had to jump to save his life. But all the boy could see was just the smoke and the fire and the flames. And so he hesitated. He was afraid to leave. And so as his father's yelling to him, Jump! I can't catch you, the boy said, Daddy, I can't see you. But the father replied, but I can see you, and that's all that matters. 
Life is often full of challenges, trials. Things come at us that we do not expect. The winds and whirlwinds of daily life can threaten to throw us off course or to lose perspective of what is true and useful. In that reality, it is helpful to know that there is one who sees us, who knows all things, and who can help his children through all things. We may not always know the best thing to do. We may not always see things clearly, but there is one who sees us and who calmly cries out to us, I am here, I see you, and that's all that matters. When we left off last week in our study in Matthew chapter 9, we were in the section of the Gospel of Matthew that is finishing up where Jesus has gone through an extensive period of teaching and preaching and performing miracles. And in his power and because of his authority, he was able to overcome, we saw last week, two of the most painful things that can happen to us in life, the parental pain over the loss of a child and pain over years of chronic illness. Because of his power and his compassion, we saw that a desperate father and a distressed mother found deliverance, hope, and peace. Well, as Jesus has been going on and performing all these miracles and the wonderful words that he has been teaching, his popularity has been going up all throughout the Gospel of Matthew as the crowds and the masses grow. At the same time, opposition is also growing to him among the religious elite of Israel in the first century. And both of those will continue as we go to our next passage today that we will look at, Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 34. Well, in honor of God and his holy word, I invite you to stand as we read the passage that we will study today. <clears throat> and the inspired and authoritative word of God says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. As God the Holy Spirit has seen fit to inspire these words for us, let us receive them and their intended purpose. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that it is your word that speaks. We thank you that it is your word that is inspired. And we thank you that it is your Holy Spirit that does the work. And so we call on him to work this morning, to open eyes that cannot see, to open hearts that are not open, to loosen wills that are bound, to give ears to hear. And we thank you that we can trust you, Father, because that is your work done in your way for your glory and for the good of your people. And so to that end, for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning to those of you joining us online. Thank you for being with us this morning. 
It is a joy for us to have you with us. I pray that you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 9, and let's go ahead and study together. As you follow along in your sermon outline, our first major point is the blind shall see. The blind shall see. Now, as the plan of God was being progressively revealed through the prophets, and as we begin to see how the Word of God fits together, we see the storyline unfold of what God is doing. But there are two passages that I want to draw our attention to this morning that are found in the prophet Isaiah that offer hope and light and truth and insight to what is happening and to what would have been words of hope to a people languishing under divine discipline. For you see, it was in the midst of God's promise of discipline to his people for their disobedience, for their hardened hearts, that he also promised a coming age that would be full of hope, that would be full of truth, that would be full of wonderful events. God promises to those going off into exile that a better age is coming. And those two passages are Isaiah 29, verses 18 and 19, and Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, both of which give examples to look for, to recognize that the Messiah has come. So let's read them before we get into Matthew 9 this morning. Matthew 20, uh, Isaiah 29, verses 18 and 19 says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. So notice some of the signs that are given as a promise through the prophet Isaiah to the people of what to expect in that day. Reading from Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Pay attention to the signs that are mentioned here, because they become important as we study the life of Jesus. But if you have paid attention a little bit, perhaps you, you hear the words of the hymn, O for a thousand tongues to sing. One of, the, one of the refrains which says, Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. John Wesley recognized that this was a prophetic passage that pointed to the Messiah, and he wanted us to be able to make this connection as well in word and in song. But when John the Baptist was in prison, he was having doubts about the true nature of Jesus. And so Jesus sends people to him to remind him of the signs that are happening in Jesus' life, including giving sight to the blind. And so Matthew, as he is telling the story to the Jewish people, he's, he's careful to include these stories about the life of Jesus. And as it's unfolded for us, it's fun to see how the Word of God fits together like pieces in a puzzle that give us the complete picture, telling us the great story of how God is redeeming a people for His eternal glory. Now, there are many miracles that are recorded in the Old Testament and different periods, but the giving of sight to the blind was not one of them. I think that's one of the reasons why the Gospel writers pay such close attention to this one particular miracle because it is full of such prophetic significance. As Exodus 4.11 reminds us, 
God is the one that's in control of all things, including the eyes. And sometimes we, we forget how in control God really is. So look at what God says to Moses, who was resisting the call of God on his life. And the Lord said to him, Moses, who made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? making a clear connection that he is the one that is in control of all things, but he is a gracious God who is not indifferent to the plight of his people. And so he gives promises of healing and redemption. And there are promises that the miracles that we'll look at this morning in Matthew 9 would be part of the future program of God. And so we have places like in Psalms, Psalm 146, we read right in the middle of the psalm, the Lord who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. This reads a lot like the different accounts that we see of Jesus as he's in the Gospels. Again, going to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42, as God is talking about the servant of Yahweh, he speaks in this manner, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, or we might say Gentiles, a covenant for the people of Israel that would include and reach out even to the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I give to I, my glory, I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. And so we can see as we take just a quick look at different aspects of the word of God, we see that the giving of sight to the blind was one of the major signs and promises of the age of the Messiah, the age of the new covenant. And so our hearts should start to percolate with excitement as we look at our passage today, because it gives us a clear sign that God is keeping his promises. Now, in the ancient world, you can imagine that having blindness would be considered one of the worst diseases, if not the worst. And in fact, some ancient commentators said the only thing worse than blindness was death. People become blind for a variety of reasons, among them just the fact that there was poor sanitation and not the availability to clean water. The blindness was seen as a type of death sentence because of how difficult it would be for one to live in the conditions in which he would find himself. And Jesus, as he comes, performs many miracles, but perhaps the one that he performs the most is this particular miracle, at least as recorded in the Gospels, the giving of sight to the blind. And it's a miracle that only Jesus performs, because as he sends the apostles out, he gives them power to perform miracles, but they don't perform this one. And so there's something unique then that talks about the, the ministry of the Messiah and what he would do and the fulfillment of God's plan for the redemption of his people. And so as we begin that the blind shall see, let's begin to get into our text with our first subpoint, the cry, have mercy. The cry, have mercy. And our text begins, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. We leave off from last week where Jesus has just come from raising the daughter of Jairus, who was the ruler in the synagogue, raising her from the dead, and a, and a miracle that astonished the people. But Jesus keeps going in his ministry, moving from place to place. He often says, I must go and continue and preach in various places. 
And as he continues, we are told that two blind men are following him. We're not told how they know that it is Jesus. Perhaps they could hear the reports about what Jesus has done. After all, we already have plenty of signs that the word of Jesus was spreading quickly. But these were men that show that they are persistent. They're insistent. They are persevering. We're told that they follow him and they cry out after him. And we're not told how long this was going on. But they long to be made whole. They know they need mercy. And they know that only they can only receive the mercy of God through the agent that is sent by God. So they follow him crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. An interesting title. We don't see it much in the other Gospels. We see it many times in the Gospel according to Matthew. It is a title that had definite messianic overtones. Of course, we recognize that David was Israel's greatest king. And the people knew that there were promises that had been given to David. They would turn to places like 2 Samuel 7 or Isaiah 9, where God had promised that he would raise up an eternal kingdom through the son of David. And in a passage that we know well that we recite at Christmas, Isaiah 9, 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so there was this longing that there must be the son of David who will come. But of course, David died and they didn't see it. The son of David died and they didn't see it. And king after king came and died and they didn't see the fulfillment of this promise. But they're expecting one who would be called the son of David. David, who was a warrior, who was a leader, who was a musician, a poet, a king. But his kingdom would not last. So how would God keep his promises? After all, the prophet Amos said that God one day would restore the fallen tents of David, the fallen walls. How would he do that? The people were looking for a day, and they understood enough that this would include the restoring of sight to the blind. And so with the coming of Jesus... The long-awaited promised day of the Messiah, of the Son of David, has come. He came as the healer, as the promised one, as the ultimate Son of David. And one of the signs was the giving of sight to the blind, both physically and spiritually. And so these blind men are following after him. They're persistent. Son of David, have mercy on us. They know that that is their lot in life where they are dependent upon mercy, for they would be kept on the outskirts of the town and would just beg of all who were coming by. They couldn't see who was coming. They couldn't see what was coming at them. They're literally at the mercy of whoever comes by, and they hear of this one called Jesus. And they understand that he's merciful, and they cry out to him and say, have mercy on us. They're not asking for power or provision, but for mercy. And so it is then that our Lord Jesus Christ, in this response to the cry for mercy, puts into practice his own teachings. He who said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Blessed are the merciful. Has a chance to show what mercy looks like. As we continue on in our text, where we have the confession, we believe. The confession, we believe. When he entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this. So Jesus has entered the house. We don't know which house it is. Some think it might have been Jesus' house in Capernaum. Some might think it was his headquarters in Capernaum when he had his Galilean ministry. We'll just say he went into the house. 
and these blind men follow him in. Now notice while they're out on the road, Jesus does not respond to their cries for help or to their comments about the identity that they're giving him, the son of David. He waits until he enters the house to do so. You see, he understands in what is sometimes referred to as the messianic secret that the people didn't have a full understanding of what the title son of David would mean, of who the Messiah would be, of what he came to do. And so he doesn't want word to get out of that he is here without him having the opportunity to explain exactly what it means because the people have such wrong expectations of what would happen. He knows that he's come to teach and to preach and to perform miracles. He doesn't want this to be known as a miracle worker because he said, I've come to teach the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And as we, we see the, the gospel story unfolding as he moves to place to place, the crowds get bigger, and you can imagine the crowds just hanging around him, and he longs even for a time of peace. Perhaps he's just going into the house to get a respite from the crowd. We don't know, but rest will have to wait if that's the case. He goes in, and they follow him in. And notice that Jesus doesn't ask them what they want. That seems rather obvious. He asks them what they believe. He's testing their faith to see what they believe about him. What did you mean by calling me the son of David? Were they expecting a type of king? Were they expecting a different type of Messiah than what Jesus came to be? As I said, they expected a dynamic political revolutionary leader to come and set them free. But he came as a different type of liberator and a different type of king with a different type of kingdom. The title Son of David, as I said, was used many times in Matthew, but not as often in Mark and Luke. And we see that Jesus, as he's operating, he's in control. Some of the miracles he performs in public. Some of them he performs in private. And here, at least, initially, it's a private matter. He says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you trust me? Do you believe that I can give sight to the blind? He's wanting a response from them. And I think there's a lesson there for us. It's true that we have needs in our lives, that we have difficulties, that we have struggles, that we have lacks, that we have blind spots. And, of course, we can go to Christ, and we need to go to Christ. But what are we asking of Him when we go? If you're in a relationship with the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ, He knows everything about your life already, so just tell Him what's on your heart. Confess your sins, confess your needs, cry out to Him. What are you asking Him to do? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you take Jesus at his word that he's able to do what he promises in your life? Do you take him at at your word that he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you? Do you believe him? When he promises that he will provide for your needs and give you peace and, and intercede for you before the Father, do you believe him? As he asks this question, they give a very simple response. They recognize now in whose presence they are in, and they say, yes, Lord. So now they've called him son of David, which means he is the Messiah. He is the promised one of God. Now they refer to him as Lord, which could be interpreted as master or ruler. These are men of faith. Yes, their faith needs to grow. Yes, they need to learn more about who Jesus is. But in their minds, they are now understanding and they're reasoning that if he is the Lord, he can heal their blindness. Yes, Lord. I believe. 
And so Jesus responds to their confession. And he cuts their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done for you. You have faith in me, he says. Your faith will be vindicated. You have asked something specifically from me. You're trusting me to do it. I will do it because it will bring me glory and it will be for your good. May your faith be answered. Now, again, we remind ourselves as we look at this expression we saw last week, may it be according to your faith. We said last week that it is not faith per se that saves us, that this somehow faith is this force out there somewhere that we just tap into or that somehow we manipulate the events that are around us because of some faith that we have. No, it is faith in Jesus who is the object of our faith. We believe that he can do it and faith in him that saves and, and heals. And so Jesus tells these two blind men, as you have had faith in me, may it be done according to your faith. But faith doesn't earn us anything with God. Faith simply takes God at his word to respond in ways that will bring him glory and will provide for us as he has promised to do so. So here we see Jesus taking a very personal interest in this very private encounter with these two blind men. We know that he could have healed with a word. He's already shown us that. He can just give the word and the healing comes. He can give the word and someone miles away can be healed. But here, he engages with them in personal interaction. And so these men are blessed to feel his love and his power for them. Think about it. They're blind men. They couldn't see who was there. They couldn't see what was coming. They couldn't see him or his face. They couldn't see his love. But with his touch, they could feel his love. They could feel his kindness. How long had it been since they had received loving human touch? Were they even used to it? They couldn't see his blindness, but they could feel it. And how meaningful it is, my friends, when you've been touched by the kindness of the Messiah. And that's what he desires to do in the lives of his people. How meaningful to have the Messiah you cannot see touch you so that you can see. So my friends, today we don't see Jesus in the flesh. But we can see him with eyes of faith and we can sense his loving touch and embrace and kindness and provision. And that's what he longs for us to have in our intimate relationship with him. So Jesus touches them and their eyes were opened. Now imagine the color, the beauty, the joy that they could now see. Imagine being blind and all of the things that you've had to deal with and your eyes are open and the first thing you see is the face of Jesus. To feel his touch, to see his face is a great blessing indeed. And don't you long for that day when you will see him face to face. And finally the veil is torn away and we walk into his glorious presence and we behold him as he is face to face. These men were physically blinded. They needed the touch of Jesus. There was something wrong with their eyes, but there's a direct parallel there in the spiritual realm. We cannot see the things of the Word of God, the things of the Spirit of God, until our eyes are opened by the Spirit of God so that we can behold them. And is it not wonderful when God opens our eyes to see the beauty of a Savior who would condescend to save such a wretch like me? 
Isn't that such a wonderful thing that Jesus opens our eyes? And so we find these two men. They had been together in their suffering and in their struggle. They'd been together in their journey to seek out Jesus. They had been healed together. So far, so good. And then we start to see a little turn in the story. We see the command, we disobey. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Now the word sternly here is very strong in the original language. He's telling them to keep quiet. He knows that there's misunderstanding, as I've said, this idea of the messianic secret. They didn't understand the Messiah that was to come. Don't tell others yet. This is a command. It's in the imperative form. It is given directly as something that they are to obey because Jesus knows that he needs to control the information. He doesn't want the masses coming to him just so that they can be healed. But they didn't listen. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. This repeats what we saw in chapter 926, where the fame of Jesus now begins to go throughout the district. So the men read out and tell what has happened. And more people will hear about the Messiah and his power and his teaching that the son of David is here. But as I said, the problem is that they were expecting a political leader, a military leader, some type of revolutionary who would overthrow the oppression of the Romans. They were not expecting a spiritual leader who would overthrow the tyranny and oppression of sin. So Jesus has given sight to the blind. They have their lives restored. They can now rejoin society. They can get back into warm fellowship with their friends. They can enter the, the temple and the synagogue. Jesus heals the whole person. But they didn't obey him. They go away and spread his fame. Now I understand their joy was so great they couldn't contain it. And it is true that people eventually would find out, because after all, two men that have been blind that suddenly see the word is going to get out, but that's not the point. He had commanded them to not go and tell others. Now, we might think that it was a good thing, but let's pay attention here, my friends. It is never a good thing to go against the clear and direct word of God. One of the signs of someone who truly belongs to Jesus is growing obedience to his word. It means that we trust him, we obey him, we do what he says to do, we don't do what he says not to do, even when we don't understand why. We obey him because he knows best. He's the one that sees the end from the beginning. He knows how it's all going to work out. Who are we that are pieces of redeemed clay that live for three score and ten how can we determine what the eternal one is doing? And so when he says yes, we say yes. When he says no, we say no. End of discussion. But what happened when they went away was the crowds got bigger. We see that Jesus was often crowded out. He would have to flee away. Yes, it caused problems for the Lord. So today... We are called to make his glories known, but according to his will and to his ways. And whereas these blind men that were saved didn't obey and they went out and declared his glories, we who have eyes to see today, are we quick to obey the command to go out and tell others? Or do we look for reasons not to? Let's obey the word of God. All of us, even when we don't understand it. We can declare that there is one who gives sight to the blind. 
we can also declare that the mute shall speak. The mute shall speak. Along with the opening up of eyes, the loosening of blocked lips and tongues to declare the praises of God was also one of the signs of the Messianic age. And so Jesus goes from opening eyes so they can see him to now loosening tongues that they might proclaim him. So we see briefly the compassion of Jesus. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. So Jesus is moving on. His entourage is moving with him. The crowds are moving with him. And they've healed these two blind men. They've left the house that they were in. And as they're moving along, they encounter this demon-possessed man who was brought to him. And we're reminded again that it's often necessary for us to bring others to Jesus who are in need, who are unable to bring themselves. This man was mute. He could not cry out to the Lord. He needed others who would cry out to the Lord for him. And so once again, we see that the gospel doesn't just impact a person. It impacts a community. And so we need, once again, to stand in the gap for those who need us to stand in the gap for them, to bring them to Jesus, to present their needs to Jesus. Maybe they can't cry out. We can cry out. Maybe they can't come. We can bring them. And this man is demon-possessed. Spiritual warfare is a reality. In our Western scientific minds, we try to explain away the fact that there is this spiritual realm that is going on. But the devil and his demons are created beings who are in direct opposition to God. They try to destroy the works of God. And as we've seen in Matthew, they opposed Jesus at every turn. They, they tried to organize things to kill him at his birth. They organized things to try to tempt him in the wilderness, to turn him away from God. They opposed him in the region of the Gadarenes. The demons opposed Jesus at every turn because they know their time is short. They know that their influence is coming to an end. But while they can, they want to cause as much harm and damage as they can. And they're real. And Jesus dealt with them, and he taught us about them. They're on a leash, but they're still active. And during this time of spiritual activity, among other things, they oppose God and all things of God, including humans who are created in the image of God. So make no mistake, my friends, the devil and his demons are doing whatever they can to destroy, dehumanize, and beat down human beings. Do whatever they can to desecrate them, to denigrate them, to destroy them. Spiritual warfare is real. And so we need to be vigilant, not fearful. We are covered in Christ with his righteousness. We have the truth of the word of God. We just go out and preach the word of God and we're protected. But we also need to be vigilant over our minds. We need to be vigilant over our hearts. Because our hearts can be easily deceived by ourselves and by others. Our minds can easily be led astray. We don't have perfect understanding and perfect perceptions. And that's why we need to walk as the community of believers to encourage one another so that we don't succumb to his divisive tactics, to his lying methods. So the devil does oppose us. But we stand firm in Christ. The devil knows his time is short. The devil knows he cannot stand in the presence of Christ 
He wants to resist God, but he must yield to him. He will and he does. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has performed many exorcisms, but he doesn't always do it in the same way. But he's demonstrating his authority over all things. And in this case, we have a man who cannot speak. We don't know how it happened. We just take the word as it says. But it's a serious situation. For each person is created in the image of God. For the purposes of God. All aspects of the person's life. But the devil seeks to influence the mind. The devil seeks to influence the heart. The devil seeks to influence our actions for his negative, evil, wicked purposes. But if all things are created by God and for God, that includes the mouth, which was created to sing praises to God, to give praises to God. And here, he can't speak. He's under the influence of the evil one. And so Jesus shows his authority and his compassion as he looks upon this man and he casts the demon out. It's an action verb. It's a violent verb. Throws out. Jesus, as the Messiah, is able to heal the whole person, restoring his dignity, restoring his value, restoring his honor. And so then we see, ever so briefly, the confession of a man. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. It doesn't say how the exorcism was done, only that it was done, that Jesus is more powerful than any spirit. Jesus is the agent of creation through whom all things were made, we're told in John 1. <clears throat> Colossians 1 says he upholds all things. All things hold together in Christ. And Hebrews 1 says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. You can trust him. Whatever you're facing in life, he upholds all things by the word of his power and he upholds you. The good news of the gospel is this. As the enemy has come to seek to kill and steal and destroy and dehumanize and denigrate, the Son of Man appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And he shows that here. This man is now able to speak. I wish Matthew had given us a little more information. What did he say? I'm sure he sang the praises of God. I'm sure he gave words of love and affirmation to his family members. But what we see is the signs of the Messiah that are present. The blind see, the mute speak, those that are in bondage are set free. My friends, have you encountered the living Christ and have you been set free? Have you been set free from the bondage of sin? Have you been set free in your heart, in your soul, in your mind to be all that Christ wants you to be and all that he has redeemed you to be in him? Is he truly your focus and your hope so that your lips would be set free to declare the glories of God. And lastly, we see the conflicting responses. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything seen like this in Israel. So the crowd's looking on, and they're amazed at what they've seen and heard. And we've seen this before. It's not yet clear enough that they believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They have responded to him in, in other instances seemingly without yet following him as Lord and Savior. But they do know that he has amazing power and they are marveling at him. But my friends, it's not enough to marvel at Jesus. We must obey and follow Jesus. 
show that we really believe him at his word where he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. I'm on the narrow way that leads to life. Follow me on the way, the truth, and the life. Follow me. I will bring you to my father who is in heaven. So the crowd gives this amazing statement. It could just be in reaction to this one miracle. It could be in reaction as a summary statement of Matthew to all the miracles that he's organized together. But they're amazed at what they've seen. Concerning the Pharisees, not so much. But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So we need to try to understand their logic a little bit here. In their minds, they were right and Jesus was wrong. In their minds, they were on the side of God, they were the spokesman of God, and they had not done these acts. So if they had not done these acts, it must not be of God. It must be of the prince of demons. It must be a trick, a way of pulling the crowds away from the ways that they had been given about the law and the prophets. And so they give this dastardly comment. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And this statement sets us up for more conflict that is to come between Jesus and the religious elite. But can you imagine saying that the prince of peace is really under the power of the prince of demons. Jesus is going to warn them later in the Gospel of Matthew that they do not know the power with which they are dealing. And he will even warn them that they are in danger of an eternal, unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But for now, we see that the battle is growing. The crowds love him, at least for now. And they're coming. They want to hear him teach. They want to see him work. But the Pharisees will also continue to grow in their opposition to him. When we began the section in chapter 8, we said that in chapters 8 and 9, there would be a collection of miracles that Matthew would gather together to show who Jesus was, that he was the authority as he has come down off the mountain, delivering his holy word as the ultimate prophet. Matthew will begin to show that he is this one who has authority over all things. And so we see that he has opened the, out, the mouth of the, the mute. He's opened the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf. He is the Messiah. He has all authority. He heals leprosy and paralysis and fever and blindness and muteness and demonic oppression. He has the ability to forgive sins. He can calm the seas. He has authority over demons and over all of nature. He shows deep love and affection for people and kindness and compassion that is deep and eternal. And for we who have been touched by that divine and eternal and deep compassion and love of God, he deserves our obedience, our affection, and our worship over everything else in our lives. Well, next week we're going to get to the end of this section, kind of a ca uh, summarizing what began back at the end of chapter 4 and what was being finished here at the end of chapter 9, where Jesus will show again his great concern for the masses of people and what he expects from his followers to do in consequence and as a result. But until we get to that wonderful passage at the end of Matthew 9, what are some lessons we can learn from today's sermon? Because we are blind in our sin, we will cry out to him to open our eyes to see his grace and truth. 
we still have that need of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to reveal to us who we still are as we fight against sin that is in our lives, in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our actions. And so we ask the Lord to give us eyes to see. Secondly, because we must have faith in him to see him at work, we call on him to grow our faith and to build our trust in him. We want to be like the man who comes to Jesus and says, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. I want to believe. I want to grow. I want to grow in my trust and my obedience to you, but you've got to help me. Help me do what you're commanding me to do. And that's a great place for a Christian to be at every moment in the Christian life. Help me do what you've commanded me to do. Because God always knows what is best, we will obey his commands even when we do not understand why he gives them. He's smarter than us. He's wiser than us. He outlasts us. His plan is never shaken. We can trust him. He will show himself in the end that he does all things well and his plan is perfect. Fourthly, when the Lord sets us free from sin, we will declare his praises and rejoice in his freedom. There is a freedom that comes in Christ. A freedom to love him, to serve him, to serve others, to listen to him, to enjoy him day by day. And because he is the Lord, we will be careful to speak respectfully about him and obey him as a way of life. He is the Lord, the sovereign one, the holy one, the majestic one, the king of kings and lord of lords. He deserves our most reverential language and praise. As we prepare to finish out this section in Matthew 9 next week, as we think about all that Jesus has done and shown us in these previous two chapters, 8 and 9, and as we contemplate the great needs that are still out there in the world today, during this week, let us pray that God gives us those same eyes of compassion as we prepare to finish up Matthew chapter 9 next week. Let us pray. Father, it is with great humility and great gratitude that we bow before you and say thank you for a word that continues to pursue us, for your spirit that continues to draw us, and for a hope that continues to strengthen us. Father, I thank you that you show us on and on how much we need you and your grace, and your mercy. Forgive us, Father, for those times where we think we can add anything to what you have done. Forgive us, Father, for those times we think that you owe us something. Forgive us, Father, for those times when we do not act clearly according to your word, thinking that our human reasoning is better. So we repent, Father. We turn to you and we say thank you that your word is true and we want to submit to it. And we thank you that your gospel is beautiful and we want to lavish in it. And we thank you that our hope is eternal and we want to rejoice even now of our citizenship in a kingdom that is unshakable. So now, Father, will you gird us up by your spirit this week to walk with quiet, patient, yet determined courage to live for you to proclaim you and to enjoy you at each step along the way. For that and we pray for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.